Good evening. Glad you're here. We are continuing our series in our kind of our Christmas December three week series. It's called Good News of Great Joy. And for those of you that were with us last week, we dived into the Christmas story and part of our pathway took us to the question, well, can we trust these stories? And then we kind of expanded it a little and we said, well, can we trust any of the stories in the gospels and what they're telling us? And so we've made this three week series into a little series about the reliability, if you will, of the gospels. And so as I promised you last week, and again, welcome to those of you watching us live stream in your bunny slippers and house robes. Uh, We appreciate you being here and just get comfortable. But we do have a special guest tonight, but before I introduce him, let's say a prayer together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we live in a country where we can gather to study your word and have free and open discussion as we pursue a greater knowledge and a greater love for you. Lord, I do pray for our country and the leaders of our country. I pray that you would turn their hearts toward you and that this nation would become an agent of your goodwill in this world. Father, I pray for our world as well and all the strife that the Christians in this world might be beacons of peace and beacons of hope. Again, we thank you for your many blessings in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, tonight we have a rare privilege uh, that Dr. Peter Williams is with us. He is, I won't make this very long because I want you to hear more from him than than from me, but I uh, did not realize this, but you became the CEO, what we would call the CEO of Tyndall House at Cambridge, and you were the youngest to ever have that 10, 11 years ago. And so Tyndall House is a publishing house, but really it's a premier biblical research facility. I first came across uh, Dr. Williams' work. Let's see, I think I first heard you when you were having a, it really wasn't a debate, it was more of a discussion with Bart Ehrman, and it was on a British radio station, it was many years ago, if I recall. And I was impressed with that, and so I've been a big fan of his work, particularly his work in uh, textual criticism in the Greek text, But tonight, that's not what we're here to talk about. He just released a book called, Can We Trust the Gospels? And you will want to get a copy when we're done, and we probably don't have enough. I think we only ordered 60 or 70 copies. But you can find these wherever good books are sold. And we will be reordering a couple hundred more, okay? So, but I think you're gonna like this. It fits nicely into our topic, and it's a timely study of the reliability of the gospel. So if you would help me welcome Dr. Peter Williams. Well, good evening. It's really great to be here. Uh, I hope you don't mind if I stay seated, but it's just easier for me to manage the screen here. And of course, it's very biblical. You know the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, taught uh, sitting. A lot of uh, sermons in the Bible given that way. So sitting's fine, and I've got this, you know, high stool so that it actually works all right, you know, I, 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 almost, almost standing. Um, and this is the book that's just come out, and I've written some unreadable books before. This one is actually readable. In fact, a 13-year-old I know has already read it and, and, and said that they understood it, which is just real encouragement. So I'm going to um, look at a couple of things tonight. But what I wanted to do with this book is get something which you could give out to people who are inquiring Of course, it can strengthen Christians' faith, but also it can be used with people who um, are just uh, looking at things for the first time, not particularly familiar with the Gospels. But it tries to give a foundation for how we can know uh, that the Gospels really are reliable. And one of the things, just to stress, is that everyone is trusting something. You know, if you don't trust, you die. Because what did you eat? Well, 
Some people probably prepared that food for you in some way. If you bought it in a supermarket, you know, in the grocery store, it's still, you're trusting someone. And people who don't trust die. We are social. God's made us social. And so, so much of what we believe is based on trusting other people's word for it, which means that God has made each of us able to evaluate trustworthiness. It's not that we always get the decision right. Nowadays, often people talk about people with faith, people of faith, as if Christians are a special breed that's like most of them's normal, but there's this weird part of their brain that might do unpredictable faith stuff. Ugh. Yeah? And we want to say, no, everyone in the world is trusting things. And actually, we can show you there's more reason to trust Jesus, there's more reason to trust the Bible than things that you are already trusting. Now, you understand the difference between that and proving, because prove is one of those words that used in lots of different ways. And sometimes people ask me to prove God as if you can do it like in a mathematical way or uh, in a formal philosophical way. And you know, you can't do that. And there's loads of things in life you can't prove. Like my mother loves me. She's an amazing mother. I can't prove my mother loves me mathematically. I really can't. It doesn't matter how long I spend on it. I've got good evidence to trust. But if someone wants to be cynical, they can explain away every action my mother ever takes in their psychobabble terms and you know why she's done it. And they can be cynical, but... The things that most matter in life, you can't prove mathematically. So what I want to say is let's look, use the right judgment on this. And let's remember we're all trusting things and we all trust what other people tell us. Can we trust the Gospels then? I want to say yes. I just want to look at um, a couple of the chapters. One of them is chapter three. It's the most substantial chapter in the book. Just simply, did the gospel writers know their stuff? Okay, so they're telling a story. They're telling a story about Jesus going around, place, teaching things and so on. Let's do a little test on them. For instance, let's ask questions about how good's their geography. So they're telling stories of Jesus going around Judea and Galilee and so on. How many towns they mention? Are they real towns? Do they get them in the right place? Do they get the traveling distances between them right? And so on. Let's just test them out on their geography. Now here you can just see a tick. I know it's quite small print and, and some of you are really, really old. You probably can't see it. Um, and, uh, but what you see is there are, sorry about that. You know, um, the great thing is your youth is going to be renewed like the eagles. So just, you know, enjoy that. Um, but when you look, you can see these ticks every time Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John mention a town. There are quite a few there, and they each have different towns from the other places. But it's not just that they have towns or villages. Some of those are small places. They also mention regions. They also mention bodies of water, whether it's rivers, pools, Sea of Galilee, and so on. In fact, they also mention places that are much smaller than towns, like the Garden of Gethsemane, the Sheep Gates, um, lots and lots of places that are mentioned now. How can they do that? Imagine if they're trying to make up a story and they're living in Italy or Greece or Turkey or Egypt. They're in another country and they're going to make up a story. Well, they might have heard of Jerusalem. How are they going to have heard of Bethany? How are they going to know that there's a gate in Jerusalem called the Sheep Gate? How are they going to know these sorts of things? How are they going to know there's a Garden of Gethsemane? That sort of stuff is really hard to get information on. Now, in fact, there's probably no way you can get that information if you're living in another country unless someone happens to travel to come and see you. So in fact, you realize that 
The information we got in the Gospels tells us something about the writers. Either the writers lived in the land or they'd had really extensive conversations with people who lived in the land. I don't see any other option for how they can have the range of information that they get. And I found out a remarkable thing. When you look at the length of the Gospels and you look at the number of place names they mentioned, you divide the number of place names by the number of words or whatever, you find there are basically, in all four Gospels, about five place names per thousand words. Now, I know, ladies and gentlemen, you came here tonight to hear that statistic. There are about five place names per thousand words. You say, wow, that makes me love Jesus so much more. Well, let me tell you about that. How can that be? Well, I've got an idea. Luke says to Mark, hey, Mark, dude, how many words do you have in your gospel? Mark goes through, carefully counts them all. You know the way they did that before computing? Like, I know, I know in their manuscripts, they didn't have divisions between words. That made it a bit harder to count, but he's a patient guy. He did it, and he gave Luke the sum. And, and, and so Luke says, yeah, okay, and, and how many place names do you have? And then he does the sum on that, even though they don't have lowercase and uppercase letters. So it's a bit harder to look at place names, just like we can read them off more easily. But he still does that. Luke then does a sum and tries to get the same proportion. Hey, and then John and Matthew hear about that and they think it's a great idea and they do the same. Now, that's not going to happen, is it really? Um, how would you get this? If you were putting in place names to make your story sound authentic, one person would put in too many, one person would put in too few, it wouldn't work. How do you get this? Shall I tell you? Yeah. By not trying. Okay, you get this. If you might, now, I'm not saying everyone who doesn't try is going to get this, but I'm, what I'm saying is the gospel writers aren't trying to make their stories sound authentic. They're just simply telling the truth. And as they tell the truth, they put in place names when it's relevant. And then when they do that, yeah, it's possible they might all end up with the same proportion, but not otherwise. Now, we can also say that when you look at the four gospels, they've each got about 12 to 14 towns, there are these things called apocryphal gospels. They're not real gospels. They are the fake, like fake $100 bills. You know, there are real $100 bills. That's why people fake them, fake other, you know. And it's the same with gospels. People um, realize that, you know, uh, th there's this guy, Jesus, and people are likely to trust him. They think, hey, he, we can use him as a mouthpiece for our message. So later on, you get people uh, coming out with other gospels and I've investigated those, and the amazing thing is how little geography they know. The very best of them is called the Gospel of Philip, and it's got how many places? Two. Oh, yeah, really great. Don't you know? Gospel of Philip. And one of them is called Jerusalem. Well, that's the capital. Well done. That's really good. And the other one is Nazareth, which is in, like, in Jesus' name, Jesus of Nazareth. And they think it's his middle name, and that's where they get it. They actually know it's a place. So not really impressive knowledge. So in a sense, that's like a control group, isn't it? You know, this is what happens, ladies and gentlemen, when you make stuff up, you get things wrong like that. But it's not just that the gospel writers get the names of places. They also know the topography. Yes, that's a posh word for where the land goes up and down. So for instance, Jerusalem is 750 meters. I don't know what that is in feet, but a lot above sea level. And um, what they're doing is every time they use the verb to go to Jerusalem, they don't just say you go, they say you go up, and when you leave it, you go down. Now you say, oh, well, yeah, but that's because it's a capital city and that's what people do with capital cities. Ah, but it also works not just with Jerusalem, it also works with other places. So it's, you know, you go down from Jerusalem to Jericho in Jesus' story, that's going down about a kilometre, whatever that is in your money. Um, but 
you find that they do it with other places. So Nazareth, about 350 meters above sea level, and Capernaum, about 200 meters below. And so, of course, uh, Luke's gospel will say simply, Jesus went down from Nazareth to Capernaum. Cana, we're not quite sure. There are three places where Cana could be, but they're all at least 200 meters above sea level. So when the gospels talk about going from Cana to Capernaum, talk about going down. In fact, there's this wonderful story in John chapter four where there's a guy who's desperate for Jesus' help and he tells Jesus again and again, come down, please come down. And he went down, you know. And so what you see uh, is that they know where the land goes up and down. Now, this is amazing. People wouldn't be able to get this unless they were either local or had really long conversations with locals. Now, you might say, well, couldn't they have got it from books? Well, let's imagine you go into a bookshop in Rome. Well, bookshops in Rome don't stock books on all the little villages of Palestine because no one wants to know about them. You know, they're not on the bucket list of all the places you want to visit before you die. They really aren't. Bethany, yeah, must go there. You know, so that's not what they do. And then you look at the books that are written. Well, there's a guy called Strabo. He wrote some geography, but he doesn't mention all the towns you have in the Gospels. There's Pliny wrote but he doesn't have all the towns. And Tacitus and others, and every single source that I looked at for how the gospel writers might have got their stuff from books, none of the books have the right towns, and a lot of them are actually written too late anyway. All sorts of reasons it won't work. So it's remarkable what we've got in the gospels. But it's not just that they have the place names right. They've also got the personal names right. So you think about it. In each different country, you've got different names that people are called, uh, you know, different popularities of different names. A thousand years ago in my country, in Britain, you know, there was a guy called Athelstan. But people don't tend to get called Athelstan and Ethelred nowadays. They're just not really names that are particularly popular. And you find over time, uh, the names change, and also they change by place. Now, people could do studies now of what's the most popular name uh, in Israel, Palestine, whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, Judea, Galilee, uh, at the time of Jesus. And you can look at that from bone boxes, the Dead Sea Scrolls, Josephus, the historian, all sorts of people like that. And you can do statistics. And the amazing thing is they find inside the Gospels, the most popular name for a Jewish man from the country is Simon. But it's also the most popular outside the Gospels. And name number two inside the Gospels is Joseph, and name number two outside the Gospels is Joseph. And amongst the women, name number one is Mary, and it's also name number one, you know, in and outside the Gospels. It's amazing that you get this. But Jewish people were called different names in different countries. Uh, so you can see an amazing thing that the top two men's names uh, inside the Gospels, about 15, 16%, uh, um, sorry, 18% are called by those top two names outside the Gospels, 15 to 16%. Uh, if you look at the top nine men's names, it's amazing that you've got about 40% given those top nine names in the Gospels, about 41 outside the Gospels. Those are so close, and that's the biggest data set. So as you get the biggest of all of these data uh, sets, the numbers get closer. With women, we don't have so much information, but the numbers still uh, match up pretty well. But look at this list, which is a different list of names. This is names for... Jewish men in Egypt, in Alexandria. You find actually completely different set of names because Jews in different countries, even back then, were called different names. So Jews in Rome usually had Latin names or Greek names, but that's not what's happening 
over in Judea and Galilee. Down in Egypt, they're called something different. So does anyone know anyone called Sabbatias? Anyone at all? No, your distant cousin's not called Sabbatias. Dog, anyone got a dog called Sabbatias? No one, no one at all. And I've asked this to so many people. No one's ever known anyone called Sabbatias. Now, maybe you call your dog Sabbatias and then, you know, be away with it. But um, so far, I- I've not met anyone. And it's amazing. Why don't we know anyone called Sabbatias? Because the Gospels weren't written about Jewish men in Egypt. If they had been, it might have become quite a popular name, but it's not. So in other words, if you're trying to make up a story about Jesus and you've got to populate it with characters, how are you going to give the characters the right sorts of names, the right proportions of names to each other? You're not going to be able to do it. Um, Imagine I say to you, hey, I want you to make up a story about uh, Libya 100 years ago and give it the right sort of names. Would you be able to do it? Okay, what about this? I want you to make up a story about Oklahoma 100 years ago and give people the right names for 100 years ago in right proportion. Would you be able to do it? I don't think so. Would you be able to do that for Oklahoma 50 years ago? Would you even be able to do it for Oklahoma now? Actually, it'd be really difficult because even if you just based on your gut feelings of what the most popular names are, often they're wrong. You read the lists of the most popular baby names, you think, I'm surprised it's that high. I didn't know that. Or you come across a name that you think is quite an unusual name, never come across that before, until you meet someone with the same name the next week. Because actually you're basing things off your gut feeling about what's a common name, and often that's not right. So in fact, even if people were living in the land making up stories, they wouldn't be able to give people the right names. Now there's a further thing to this. If Simon's such a popular name, you call out Simon, and of course loads of guys turn their heads, right? So you've got to find a way of distinguishing one Simon from another. That's exactly what they do in the Gospels and Acts. So for instance, Jesus has got a disciple called Simon Peter or Simon Cephas and another one called Simon the Zealot or Simon the Canaanite. That's another thing for the same uh, name. Jesus has a meal in Matthew with someone called Simon the leper who doesn't seem to be a leper at the time because people are happily having a meal with him. Maybe Jesus had healed him. Who carried Jesus' cross? Simon of Cyrene. Um, uh, who is there, Simon Peter, staying with in the book of Acts? Simon the tanner or the leather worker. In other words, with all of these most popular names, you add something extra on. It can be where they come from, their dad's name, their job, whatever it is, something to distinguish them from all the other Simons. Same with Mary, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you'll remember this. Joseph of Arimathea, you get this with all these most common names. It's happening all the time. And this is amazing because you look at this, say, list of disciples in Matthew's Gospel. This is the list as it's given. And I put the statistics for how common each of those names is next to the names. And this is the way the list goes. Simon, name rank number one. So we're going to need to explain which one it is. Simon called Peter. And Andrew, pretty low ranking, but he's explained in relation to his brother. James, high ranking. So let's give dad's name, son of Zebedee, and John explained in relation to his brother. Two low-ranking names, Philip, 61st equal, and Bartholomew, 50th equal. Don't need to say anything more because they're not that common. Thomas, not even on the charts, not in the top 99, nothing more to say. Matthew, high-ranking, so let's give his job, the tax collector. James, high-ranking, let's give dad's name, the son of Alphaeus. Thaddeus, low-ranking, don't need to say anything more. Simon, high-ranking, the Cananean, and Judas, high-ranking, Iscariot who also betrayed him. You see, what we're seeing is there's a correlation between whether there's an extra bit in Matthew's genealogy 
and how common that name is based on statistics that have only been known for less than 20 years. Now, to me, that says, I know there are other things going on here with repeated names, but this is a list that really looks like it's been formed in the land itself because if it were formed somewhere else, you wouldn't need to disambiguate like this. It also affects conversations. So Herod, nasty guy in uh, Matthew's gospel, gets worried when he hears about what Jesus is doing. And he says to his, his, his courtiers, this is John the Baptist come back. You know, I've killed John the Baptist and, and so on. And why does he have to say, this is John the Baptist? Because if he'd said, this is John, his courtiers would have said, uh, which John? You've got quite a few working in the palace num at the moment. Don't you know it's ranked number five amongst names? Well, they didn't know that. But, you know, they would have had a sense it's quite common. So that's why you say John the Baptist. But then when you continue the story and Matthew's writing his gospel, he doesn't need to say John the Baptist all the time. He can simply say John because you know which John you're talking about. So that's why he doesn't need to say John the Baptist. But then when Herodias' daughter wants the head of John the Baptist, she can't just say, give me the head of John. She might have got the head of the wrong John. So she says, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Next verse, he sent a beheaded John. Now, do you see what's going on? The characters in the narrative are speaking one way. The storyteller, the narrator, is speaking another way. Why? Because they're correctly recording the way characters would have had to have spoken. Now, you've got two options. You can say either they actually said that or the story writer has got a lot of information about the sort of ways that people would actually have had to have spoken. Now, to me, it's a bit simpler to say, hey, they just reported what people actually said, but you've got an alternative if you like. That is that you can say the gospel writers are really so super clever that they anticipated the sort of way that people would write and they reckoned that they had a really intelligent audience so they needed to write that way so that the intelligent audience would believe what they have to say. That's a bit more complex, isn't it? So I would say, isn't it better just to say they're truthfully reporting things? That's, that's what's going on. And what I'd say is this doesn't prove that it's true, it doesn't, but it's consistent with it being eyewitness testimony. It requires some information, some tradition handed down. It's inconsistent with the hypothesis that this sort of stuff is made up. So it's not that I can prove something. I can simply say, well, it's pretty simple and rational and reasonable to trust. And what's your explanation for what's going on? Because I bet you that anything you, you know, someone else wants to come up with for why not to believe is going to be far more complicated and far less believable. And I want to say, even if you lived in that context yourself, you'd struggle to make the stories up like this. Now, let's talk about tax, because it's one of people's favorite subjects. You know, um, uh, it's quite an interesting thing, isn't it? But we're really glad that um, Mary and Joseph decided to pay their tax and actually got to Bethlehem and fulfilled prophecy. Um, so, um, Matthew and Mark tell a story about how uh, Jesus has this meal with loads of tax collectors, okay? And that is set in Capernaum. And the interesting thing about Capernaum is Capernaum is at the top of the Sea of Galilee, and it's a double border. If you're coming across the Sea of Galilee, you're coming across from the Decapolis, so it catches people there. And if you're coming across... Um, uh, just uh, over the top of the Sea of Galilee, it catches people from the neighbouring area. So tax collectors then were toll collectors. They, uh, you know, they're stationed in the town, which is the first town you come to when you come across the border. And so it makes complete sense that you'd have toll collectors right there, and Matthew and Mark get it exactly right. 
Now, quite a separate story is in Luke. And in Luke, it talks about there being a chief tax collector, a little guy called Zacchaeus. And the interesting thing about Zacchaeus is, as a chief tax collector, that means there are probably lots and lots of tax collectors swarming around or whatever tax collectors do. Um, And that's happened, that's set in Jericho. And guess what? Jericho is also a border town. It's the first town you come to when you cross the Jordan. So in fact, you can look at it on a map and actually it's too small to see. But the basic point is this. Independently, Matthew and Mark, load of toll collectors at a border town, and Luke, load of... uh, toll collectors are border town, but a different border town. Why? Because these gospel writers knew their stuff. They knew what they were writing about, and they just simply record this. And one of the great things about these sort of things is there are loads of them, far more than in my little book. And you can do this with anyone. You can open almost any page of the gospel, and it says, like, they're coming down the Mount of Olives. Guess what? There is a Mount of Olives, and you do have to come down it. It's right near Jerusalem and so on. There is knowledge on every page of the Gospels, local knowledge, knowledge of language, knowledge of weather, geography, all sorts of things. So you can actually share that with people. That, you know, what we've got to do is we've got to get people reading the Gospels because the Gospels have so much evidence and some of it I would call subliminal evidence. It doesn't mean you can't analyse it, but it's the sort of thing that if you read, you get a feeling which is a rationally based feeling that this is trustworthy. And it's the same feeling you sometimes get when you get a feeling about someone that they are trustworthy or a feeling that they're untrustworthy. Often it's not because we've thought, wow, that guy blinked 57 times in a minute and so on. You haven't analysed it like that, but you just something about it that made you think that person's shifty or something about that person you made, them, uh, made you trust them. Sometimes we can get that wrong, but we're constantly deciding to trust. And I think as you read the Gospels, you can see signs of their credibility all over the place. In fact, there's an interesting thing about Matthew, and that is Matthew's quite a bit into finance. You know, he's supposed to be a tax collector. Do you know how many things that he mentions to do with money or wealth or treasure which aren't in any other gospel? For instance, he tells about the wise men, the magi, and their rich gifts. He tells about the parable of the hidden treasure. He tells about the parable of the discovered pearl. He tells you about the scribes who bring out old and new treasures from their storehouse. He tells about the people who collect the temple tax who go to Peter, not in any other gospel. He tells about the parable of the man forgiven 10,000 talents of debt who won't forgive 100 denarii to his neighbour, not in any other gospel. The workers who grumble for their pay. Uh, He talks about the parable of the talents, Judas's betrayal money and what it bought and the bribe to the guards. He was interested in money. It really makes sense he was a tax collector. And all these sort of things are hallmarks of authenticity. So that's one area. Do the Gospels know, writers know their stuff? Yes, they really do. And that means that they were capable of writing reliable history. Second uh, argument I just want to come on to, and this is my uh, final argument, uh, chapter four, where I talk about something called undesigned coincidences. Now here, I just give a fraction in my book of what there is. If you want a better book on the subject, Lydia McGrew, Hidden in Plain View, is a great book, which just talks about how many times there are that the gospel writers have subtle agreements or uh, things that dovetail one with another, uh, which actually are so subtle, you can't say one writer's made up the story to uh, make the other one look uh, genuine. In fact, it's just amazing. So I'll just give you a a few examples of those. So here's a well-known story from Luke's gospel, 
which is the story of Mary and Martha. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. I think she was the homeowner. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Notice where she is, sitting and listening. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and are troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen a good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is such a brief story, but you just get this slight cameo of two contrasting sisters. And there is Martha, and if you want something practical done, Martha's your lady. She would just get it all done and arrange it and you know, even make sure she owns a house. She does the welcoming. She's going to make sure everyone's fed and so on. And there's Mary. And she is just listening. And, I, and, and Jesus says that's the better thing, the better thing, the better choice. And that's all you get. And that's only in, uh, in Luke's gospel. It's not in Matthew, Mark, or John. But then John has a story of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, who dies. And the amazing thing is this. Jesus comes along uh, after Lazarus is dead. Martha hears, and immediately she's the action woman. She goes to see Jesus. Mary remains seated. Oh, yeah, that was where she was in Luke's gospel. She was sitting as well. Um, And Martha does the welcoming. Oh, yeah, that was what she did in Luke's gospel as well. And then Martha sends a secret message because she's full of activity and she sends a secret message back to Mary and says, hey, he wants you. She can't bear for something not to be happening. And Mary gets up promptly at that point, going, and people think she's going to weep at the tomb. And then what's she do? She fell at Jesus' feet. Oh, where was she positioned in Luke's gospel? She was at Jesus' feet, wasn't she? And then Jesus saw her weeping. And it's really interesting. There's no record of Martha weeping. She was just too practical for that sort of thing. Jesus says, okay, remove the stone from the tomb. And Martha is... Uh, worried about the smell. She's so practical. Now, this is an amazing thing because you've got two completely unrelated stories, but with the same characters there. That's the sort of thing when you get true stories independently reported. It's the sort of dovetailing you get. I'll give you another example. In Mark's gospel, and only in Mark, you've got these two brothers, James and John, who are called sons of thunder. And he doesn't tell you why they're called sons of thunder. It's just left there. They're called sons of thunder. Wonder why. Then you go to Luke's gospel and Jesus gets rejected by a city of the Samaritans. And when the disciples, James and John, saw, they said, Lord, you want us to say that fire should come down from heaven and consume them? Fire from heaven, ladies and gentlemen, is lightning, isn't it? You know, and so in other words, that thing is just left hanging in Luke and you wonder why them, why would it be particularly them? And suddenly you realize, wow, that really fits with that little detail in Mark. Now, on its own, that isn't like a convincing argument for the truth of the Gospels, but there's loads and loads of these sort of things. Go and read McGrew's book. You'll find there are lots of them, and that is what you would expect. It's the number of them. It's a cumulative argument where you think, actually, if people were making these things up, it wouldn't work. So I just want to end with one um, more story, which is the only miracle other than the resurrection reported in all four Gospels. It's the feeding of the 5,000. Now, as Mark tells the story, he says there's green grass. And John says there's much grass. Now, is that a detail that's just put in there to make it sound authentic? Very similitude, you know, giving it a a flavor of that. 
Is that what's going on or is it true? Well, let's leave that question hanging. Mark tells you, though, that there are lots of people coming and going at the time, but doesn't explain why lots of people are coming and going. You wonder why they are. But John tells you it's Passover time. Ah, Passover time, sort of their equivalent of Thanksgiving. Yeah, lots of traveling at that time. Yeah, everyone needs to go to Jerusalem and so on. So suddenly John is explaining Mark, but doing so not in a direct way, in an oblique way, talking about it being Passover time. Then in John's gospel, and only in John's gospel, Jesus turns to a disciple called Philip and said, hey, where should we get bread from? He's testing him, of course. And in John, Philip and then Andrew get involved in the reply. Now, why them? Again, you're reading John's gospel, you don't see anything to it. But as you read Luke, he reports that the feeding took place near Bethsaida. Well, again, so what? Well, read the beginning of John, and it tells you that Philip and Andrew were from Bethsaida. So if you're reading through John's gospel on its own, you don't see any significance to why he turns to this particular disciple, Philip. But if you plug in the information from Luke, suddenly it's explained that Jesus turns to a man with local knowledge and asks him where to get bread from, and he and another man uh, with local knowledge get involved in the reply. Two, the only two of Jesus' disciples, incidentally, with Greek names. So it really fits. Even that little detail in John that there was a boy with barley loaves fits exactly with when you have Passover time and therefore have just had the barley harvest. But we want to know, what about that grass? Would that grass really have been green? Well, to answer that question, of course, you need to get a precipitation chart from a nearby town, and then you need to plug in when Passover time would be, which would be around April. And yeah, you say, yeah, we've just had five of the greatest months of precipitation during the year. Would the grass have been green? You bet. So in other words, these sort of things just converge together. Now, people say, well, okay, that doesn't prove the miracle. Yeah, but the way a lot of people like to explain the miracles is they say it happens through the telephone game style exaggeration, you know, as people tell the story again and again. But is there a method whereby you could corrupt the main part of the story through exaggeration, you know, the miracle, meanwhile leaving the peripheral and unimportant parts of the story, the incidental details, really accurate? Actually, no, you can't have selective corruption of information like that. There's no mechanism for that. So in other words, if you've got the peripheral details right, think, yeah, that's the hard stuff to get right. That's, that, that shows that people are handing down these stories with great care. So when asked the question, can we trust the Gospels, I'd want to say, yes, we really can. Thank you. That is fascinating, and that is a quick overview of just two of the chapters. Mm -hmm. So there is a, a lot here. I appreciate you leaving some time for us to ask a couple questions. One, if I could summarize that, and, and correct me if I get it wrong, but in a simplest sense, you've basically made the case that the writers of the Gospels were independent. You remember you said there's mm -hmm. really no way you could have the same ratio of place names. You couldn't mm -hmm. coordinate that. And then the undesigned coincidences say they're independent, and they're uncanny yep. in their agreement. And I think that's a powerful one-two punch. The question I have, just to get your, your thoughts on this, is sometimes people criticize 
uh, Christianity because there are four gospel accounts and they're not exactly yep. in every detail uh, telling the same story. What's your thinking on the four gospels? Yeah, I think it's amazing that we've got four gospels. That's as many narratives as you have of the most famous guy at the time, the Roman emperor uh, Tiberius. So it's pretty impressive that you'd have that. But also they, af- they occur... Having four narratives allows you to think critically about them, to evaluate them, to see that. Again, it's just an abundance of information. And we've got long speeches of Jesus, and we've got individual sort of conversation, quick-fire conversation with Jesus, Mm -hmm. all adding together to give us this same picture. And the Gospels also occur as a sort of group of three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, more similar to each other, Mm -hmm. and John a little bit different. And that's an amazing thing again. Mm -hmm because they are in the optimal relationship for us to be able to think the most about them. Imagine if you had four which seem to have no relationship at all to each other. Actually, it'd be really difficult to uh, think through them. Imagine if you had two that were close, like Matthew and Mark, you know, and that Luke was um, really different and John was really different. Again, you would think you wouldn't be able to work anything about the relationship between Matthew and Mark. What we've got with three that are quite close and one that's more different is the optimal way, using the four witnesses only, mm-hmm. you can have the most possible access to evaluate things. Yeah. Um, so it's a really great thing that we've got, and um, I think God's put it there because each one of them has, uh, you know, it's an independent testimony. Uh, th- there are things where Matthew and Luke overlap, but there are things where Matthew's entirely, it's only in Matthew, the things are only in Luke. Um, so you've got lots of different types of material. And also, the gospel writers have got different emphases. So Matthew's very Jerusalem-focused. He's telling you particularly about the kingship of Jesus, and you get all sorts of things about the kingdom of God coming through. And that's great, because as you read that, you are caused to think differently. You know, Luke has got a lot about the humble being uh, exalted and the exalted being humble and so on. There are just great riches in each of these gospels that we're meant to meditate on Mm -hmm. and i think uh no one of them no not even all four of them exhaust the wonders of jesus john's gospel is quite explicit about that you could Mm -hmm. fill the world with books on jesus um and i think you know god's just given us the absolute optimum number where you can get to read them again and again i mean again if the bible were this long Mm -hmm. you know you wouldn't be able to do that so uh yeah it's it's just great so it's an advantage. Uh, well, I could ask you questions all evening, but I want to make room for our folks watching online and texting in questions. Uh, Laura, do we have a question for Peter? Yes. Uh, some say that not all the Gospels were written by the people they're named after. Uh-huh. Do you believe there's evidence that that is indeed the case? Right. So I think that all four Gospels were written by the people they're named after, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If I can just start with Mark and Luke, because I think they're really easy. Mark and Luke would be nobodies if it weren't for their Gospels. So like J.K. Rowling, you, you've heard of her because of the Harry Potter series. You know, um, So no one's got a motive to stick the name Mark or Luke on, because Mark and Luke aren't part of the 12 disciples. And you, what would they have done other than the gospel. So there's, there's no motive to put them on. Um, now, with Matthew and John, I mean, I've just given you, you know, various lines of evidence that Matthew was a tax collector, has the sort of financial interests of a, um, a tax collector. Uh, with John, I think you can make a strong case that it is by um, John. 
uh, as an eyewitness. Now, just to give you um, a, a few lines of, uh, if someone wants to read more, there's a book called, by Charles Hill called Who Chose the Gospels? It's got a great section on who uh, uh, wrote uh, them. There's also a great book by a man called Brant Pitray, which is something, is it called The Case for Jesus? Um, he's a Catholic apologist, and he's written a really good case in there for the Gospels being written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and revolutionary John. That's interesting, too, just to follow up to that, because uh, that's an interesting argument about Mark and Luke. For example, the Gospel of Thomas, which we've talked about in other classes mm. in here, which, of course, no one thinks that that was actually written by Thomas, but there was an advantage to yeah. putting Thomas's name on it because he was one of the disciples. And that's a really interesting point. There was no advantage to put no. Mark and Luke's name. There was mm. nothing to be gained, so it lends credence that... Yeah. And also, the Gospels wouldn't have been able to circulate if they were utterly unknown and had no names on. So a friend of mine... Um, called Simon Gathercole's written an article recently arguing that they were never anonymous. In fact, we've got a, a new free magazine uh, which you can sign up for, tinderhouse.com, uh, uh, which uh, actually has an article all about that. So, you know, uh, free magazine. Don't we're, say no to that. We're interested in that. Laura? Um, what's your perspective on the dating of the Gospels and when they were written? Yeah, well, I, uh, thank you. I didn't actually put dates on the Gospels uh, at all uh, in, in the book uh, because I don't think the Gospels come with dates on them. And so a lot of people say confidently this Gospel was written in this particular year. Well, I want to say I believe the Gospels are first-generation documents. They're authentic. They're by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But I don't know what year they're written, and I don't think it makes a lot of difference. So if Matthew really is by Matthew, it has to be written within the lifetime of someone who can be a disciple of Jesus around the year 30. Uh, likewise, if John's by John. Uh, if Luke is by Luke, then it has to be written by someone who can be a traveling companion of Paul in the 50s and 60s. So unless you're going to say these people waited till they're in the last decade of their life and then they wrote, it tends to put things quite early. Now, some people don't like that because after all, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say, have a um, depiction of Jesus to, um, talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70. And so a lot of uh, skeptical scholars say, well, it must have been written after that. Well, yeah, I think Jesus could predict things. So I'm not going to buy that argument. So I'm really happy with them being quite early. How early? I don't know. It doesn't particularly matter. I mean, you know, as I say, often I'm, I've I've got a 98-year-old granny, and she can remember all sorts of things from a long time ago, like yesterday. So, you know, I don't think it's to do with... Uh, you know, um, the, the date, these are first-generation documents. I think we can tell that from the content. You know, one thing I'd add, I'll give you, tease you a little bit. There is a great little chart in here where, uh, correct me if my memory's wrong, but you basically uh, take some generally accepted dates by American scholars. You have some generally accepted from some Jewish work and Jewish historian. Mm -hmm. And your point, if I recall correctly, is even if you take dates that are later than you think, 70s, 80s for uh, Matthew and Luke, and maybe 95-ish uh, or so for John. Even if you take dates there, it still makes sense. And yep. I thought that even if you don't get the optimal dating, yep. it still makes very good sense. I yep. thought that was a powerful yep. argument. Yeah, and I think sometimes what we want to do is we want to um, prove more than we can. 
And my argument, again, comes back to the title of the book, why I chose it, Can We Trust the Gospels? I'm talking about that sort of trust. We, and it's got to be distinguished from, can we prove to the satisfaction of a history department? And this applies, in fact, to the whole Bible. You know, you can't prove the existence of Abraham. We're never going to find his tent pegs. Never, you know. But there are all sorts of people who've existed. Um, You know, you can't prove like that. But then you ask the question, not can I prove to a history department, but can I rationally, correctly using my brain that God gave me, can I trust that Abraham existed? And the answer is, yeah. And that's quite a different thing. And and to, and to, to, to frame it like that, it is different. Excellent. Laura? Yes. Um, what, in your opinion, is the best argument out there that refutes the reliability of the Gospels? What's the best argument that refutes the reliability of the Gospel? I just don't think there's any that are particularly good. So um, the biggest problem in the Gospels um, is probably... It's the beginning of Luke chapter 2 when it talks about Quirinius and the census. And, you know, you can go and read all the stuff about uh, problems there. But you see, even there, the great thing is that's, the, that's as bad as any of the problems get. And it goes like, um, you know, when exactly was Quirinius governor? Now, how do we know that Quirinius was governor of Syria, you know, apart from, from Luke? Well, there's a guy called Josephus who mentions it. And at the very worst, the problem goes like this. There is a clash between Luke and and Josephus. Well, if there's a clash, why do I have to choose Josephus? He's probably 10 years younger than Luke, you know, further from the time. I don't think I, you know, I have to choose it. And I also know that Josephus has got quite a lot of writing, and sometimes he seems to contradict himself. So what if we only had, uh, instead of the case where he contradicts himself, we actually had only one of his accounts, we would think that was absolutely the case. So we've got to recognize that um, even at the very worst, Problems that there are in the New Testament are not unsolvable. I mean, imagine if you had in one gospel, Jesus was born in Bethlehem and another, he was born in Egypt, in Alexandria. I mean, this would be really problematic to fit together. We don't have anything like that in the gospels. None of the problems are on that sort of level at all. How likely do you think it is that historians um, or other people have corrected incorrect names or times or places in the Bible as it was published and distributed over time? I think it's exceedingly unlikely. And and there are so many reasons for this. So um, one of the things I point out, because, you know, we've edited, spent a lot of time editing the Greek New Testament. In fact, we've just got here... uh, uh, Terry's got a copy of our um, Greek New Testament produced with Cambridge University Press and Crossway. And, you know, we spent uh, a lot of time working through early manuscripts there. And you go to the opening of John, and the thing is, we have the same sequence of uh, f- letters for the first 14 verses as Erasmus had 500 years ago, even though our manuscripts are 900 years earlier than his. So I'd want to say the great thing about the New Testament is not only do you have Greek manuscripts, which come from all over the place, there's not just one single city that has them all, the monasteries and the museums where they reside, different jurisdictions and so on, but then people also translate the Gospels and the New Testament into other languages, Latin, Coptic, the language of Egypt, Syriac, uh, Armenian, Anglo-Saxon, Gothic, you know, Slavonic and so on. Now, if anyone in any particular place 
whether within the Pope's jurisdiction or the Eastern Church's jurisdiction or under um, any one of the monarchs of Europe or whatever it is, if they wanted to change the text, they would not be able to because there would be people outside their jurisdiction who wouldn't follow whatever they wanted to change. And actually, mechanically changing things is really difficult because every copy is made by hand. So you can enter a change into your copy in your monastery. That doesn't make the monastery next door or along the road do anything different. And, and do you think that they're all going to uh, decide to uh, adopt your changes even if you did? It's not practical. And then you've got to think how expensive it is to produce a manuscript. You know, for manuscripts written on leather, think how many animal skins you're using to produce a whole gospel or a whole New Testament. It's, it's a lot of animal skins and it takes weeks and months of work to copy things out by hand. And so are you really going to go to the effort of, uh, to falsify things? And even if you did falsify one copy, that wouldn't produce uh, descendant copies. And this is just a point to make here. Our culture depends on copying. Every time I listen to someone's voice on my phone, I'm not hearing their voice, I'm hearing a copy of their voice. Or to quote Bart Ehrman, a copy of a copy of a copy of their voice. You know, that's what's actually going on. Many, many copies, and we are happy with that. We're not worried that things are being miscopied. And that's the same in the past. Why would we think that people weren't able to copy? They had people called scribes. It was their job to copy. Why should we think people didn't do a good job of it? Now, you watch, say, some sports at home. Now, you know that there's CG, computer generation ability, so that they could falsify the picture that you're seeing on the screen when you're watching a sports match. What makes you confident that they're not doing so? Well, you know that if they were doing it, they would need a massive budget to hire an army of geeks in order to do so. It's exactly the same if you want to falsify a book in antiquity. If you want to falsify the Bible, you have to have a massive budget to hire an army of geeks to do so. So it's just implausible. One of the great points I think you make in the book is, I think you made this towards doctrine, but I think it applies here too. When you see the popular books and the popular shows, you get some scare statistics, you know, of how many differences there are. And you, you do a good point of saying there are very few that are significant. But you make a really good point here that I really hadn't thought much about is as Christianity grew, it became harder and harder mm -hmm. to make changes. Sure. Like you said, now you not only need an army of copyists, as it grows over 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, you need an even bigger yeah. army. So the later it goes, the harder it is to change yeah. something. Yeah, and we, we see this, you know, um, for instance, with the King James Bible and the printing of that over time be, um, between Britain and America. Because as we split apart, you know, and then we're each producing our own slightly different copies of the King James Version and so on, actually, you know, the idea that having split apart, you know, one of us is going to be able to coerce the other to, to you know, uh, get, bring their Bible into line. It just doesn't happen. And, and that's, that's in an obvious case. You just look at history and the way people have split apart, whether it's one monastery not getting on with another monastery or one country not getting on with another country, the idea that all these people together conspired to change things, it makes no historical sense. Yeah, I thought that was a powerful point. Laura? Before you began your studies, were you a believer before yes. you began? Yes, so uh, great question. I grew up in a Christian family, wonderful, uh, godly parents uh, who uh, had, were very you know, open-minded, had lots of books, 
and you know, taught us uh, to love the scriptures, uh, went to university to study, uh, wanting to become a Bible translator. In university, came across people who knew the Bible really well and didn't believe it, went through a period of faith crisis and looking for answers, and then realized that actually there was a real need for people to be Bible scholars as well. And so that's been my calling since then, but I love Bible translation as well. So how has your uh, research affected your faith? How's my research affected my faith? Well, what I'd say is, you know, uh, we, we can't separate uh, our study from um, the knowledge of God. And I'd say that um, as we come before God, we come before him naked. Uh, he clothes us. And we can't uh, suggest to him that we know a lot. He's got infinite knowledge, and we just know tiny amounts. And so I think it's having that sense of who he is uh, has always been very important. And what I think has been exciting for me as I've studied is to find more and more evidence of the truth of the Bible. I, I think there's more, there's so much evidence I know for the truth of the Bible that I haven't written down, I haven't had time to write down, great new arguments I, I think of. Mm -hmm. There are loads and loads of them, and I think there are loads of arguments still waiting to be discovered. So although I've been thinking about writing this book for 22 years, uh, I didn't get round to actually writing it until on the back end of last year. And when I sat down to write it, it, it came really easily. I wasn't having to force the data in order to make it fit. I mean, the, the nice thing about going through this was finding, actually, I think about them, and I think the arguments are good. I think they're sound. You know, so it's not that I'm having to uh, persuade myself, screw up my eyes and believe. I think, you know, I just look at the list of places they know and they seem to know a lot of places, you know. Uh, and so just at a very simple level, I think you can apply your brain and you can see loads of evidence of authenticity. And, uh, you know, uh, your faith can grow as you trust God. Now, there is this thing that God is in the habit of catching the wise in their craftiness. He actually says that. So there is a danger... Uh, that knowledge puffs up. Knowledge is a dangerous thing for humans, as many things that we have. Power can be dangerous, wealth can be dangerous, knowledge can be dangerous. So that's something you've got to bear in mind, and you've got to constantly remember, well, I may think I have a lot of knowledge. I don't really have much when I compare it with God's omniscience. So that's really important to bear that in mind all the time. Do you have a personal favorite gospel, and if so, Why? Uh, do I have a personal favorite gospel? On principle, no. Because we are told in Matthew, man shall not live by uh, bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, which means that every single bit of it's important, including the bits that don't seem important to me. And that's really important because we, we can often think, I'm going to appreciate the bits of the word of God which speak to me now. So why should I read the beginning of 1 Chronicles, which is a list of names? Well, one reason you might want to do it is to realize that the world isn't just about you, you know. Uh, and for you actually to realize that these dead people that you read about, you know, in 1 Chronicles matter to God, that may be quite an important lesson for you. So I'd want to say absolutely do not have a favorite gospel. They are all awesome. Or the other thing I'd want to do is I'd say, yes, a favorite gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. <laughs> Where do you see Christianity going in the UK? 
Where do I see Christianity uh, going in the UK? Well, everyone who truly has uh, believed in Christ is going somewhere really awesome. But we've also got to recognize that God has reserved knowledge of the future to himself. This is really important. Unless he's revealed it, we don't know. And it's, it's important for us to recognize this, that we're not called to be futurologists and, and so on. And so obviously we can see that there's been a large amount of secularization happen in the UK, also a large amount of secularization happen in the US. And so you can have a sense that, ah, oh, the next step is this. But who would have predicted that there would be this many Christians in Iran? Who would have predicted there would be this many Christians in China? And who would have predicted that the evangelical church would double in France, in France of all places, in the last 20 years? Who would have predicted that? No one. So if you think, aha, God's given up on the West and he's judging us and the society's just going to shrink. Some people, I've heard people say this about America. God's given up on America. He's sending over to judgment. I say, mm. how do you know? Has he told you? You know, hasn't told me that. I don't, what verse is it? You know, how do you know? You have no clue about the future and you are not called to know about the future. You are called to be faithful. You know that? We're not called to be successful. We're called to be faithful. And so um, the point is we're supposed to get ready for whether the church is going to shrink or whether it's going to grow. Uh, we've got the same job to do. That's a, a very encouraging word to end on. I know it's been an hour. It doesn't seem like it. We could listen to you all day. And you know what? The next best thing is read this book. It's great. So thank you so much thank for you. coming. Next week, we will talk about why should we believe the miracles actually happen? So bring your friends and let's see what evidence there is for miracles in the gospels. Thank you guys.